0: Welcome to the 39th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're talking to the lovely Rishul Herbans, developer, speaker, and author of Grokking Artificial Intelligence Algorithms. We talk about the AI scene in South Africa. Ethics is an important part of the intro to his book. What Black Mirror can teach us about AI. Going past ethical principles. Why expert systems were omitted from the book and innovation with fearful and hopeful intentions this episode is sponsored by manning publications manning.com they publish all kinds of different coding books from ai to games web development databases etc and stay tuned to the end of the episode as we'll be giving away four ebooks of grokking artificial intelligence algorithms thank you and hope you enjoy Hi, Rachael, um, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If you could just quickly introduce yourself and what do you do, that'd be
1: great. Thanks, Ben. Uh, yeah, I'm Rachael Herbens, the author of Grokking Artificial Intelligence Algorithms. Um, I'm a solutions architect at one of the largest software engineering companies in South Africa, um, and I have also have a deep interest in artificial intelligence, machine learning, as well as finding new ways to solve difficult problems.
0: Great. And um, so before we jump into kind of the topics behind um, things that you might find in the book, um, can you give us a definition? What is AI?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's an unanswered question at the moment. Um, if you look at the different kind of facets of, of people in ac- academia as well as in industry, If you ask a philosopher what intelligence is, or ask a biologist what intelligence is, uh, you'll get two different answers. So um, we're actually having trouble understanding intelligence because we kind of only measure ourselves as humans as the baseline of what the epitome of intelligence might be. So uh, that's still a kind of open-ended question of what is artificial intelligence. But at least at the moment, what we try to classify it as is mechanisms to teach machines how to do things that human humans can do naturally. Um, I think it extends personally, I believe it extends far more than that. We have developed machines to do things that humans aren't capable of doing. And the question is, should that be categorized as intelligence or not? So it's a, it's an interesting question. But I always try to keep it uh, back to the practical side of things. And uh, basically, if we're trying to simulate some behaviour, where we're teaching something to learn in an environment, uh, where we're not kind of hard coding decisions within an algorithm or in a machine, I see a glimpse of intelligence in those in those uh, solutions.
0: So any kind of software solution which isn't necessarily hard coded, it learns interprets it kind of finds its way does something there which is um, smart useful in that context
1: yeah i'd say so Um, it's interesting because it's always changing i mean two two three decades ago when we looked at things like search algorithms which we take for granted these days when you do a google search the algorithm that's happening behind that is quite sophisticated and when at first kind of first iterations of search algorithms were seen as artificial intelligence. And when we look back at them now, they're not really considered that in terms of modern AI. Uh, They're sometimes grouped into into this category called old AI. Mm. So I think it's this ever evolving uh, kind of concept where it's very hard to define
0: yeah and I think that's one of the things that I liked about the the book that you that you've uh, released recently, the Grocking artificial intelligence algorithms um it kind of appeals to me because I have a background in uh, games as well as um, web and and other technical aspects like that that there's a lot of you know path finding, there's a lot of decision trees and state uh, trees and and things like this, which are AI to the games industry, but for data scientists, they're not super useful, or they're not necessarily the new trendy machine learning algorithms um, like neural networks or uh, different clustering algorithms, those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, my whole career has also been mainly around building enterprise applications and enterprise solutions. So there's been a lot of web development, a lot of enterprise backend development, and then obviously working with that data to inform different businesses. Now, a lot of the work we've done has actually been providing a lot of business value using very simple algorithms. Um, our data science team at at the company I work for actually mainly use uh, traditional statistical techniques outside of neural networks uh, that actually solve the problem in a more optimal way and quicker uh, than actually trying to harness kind of deep learning and and all of the buzzwords that we hear in 2020. Um, so the whole kind of concept I'm going to get across in the book was that these old, lesser known, or sometimes underappreciated algorithms could be useful in solving modern problems as well. It doesn't always have to be uh, deep learning.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, although... It's almost like um, that's the, the, the thing to do at the moment. You can just jump to this uh, neural network or machine learning algorithms and then hope that it works. Um, so in the book you kind of um, you talk about some of the historical context. Um, so uh, w- what is the book all about, I guess and, and who is it for? Okay yeah. Um,
1: so basically the audience for the book uh, primarily, I guess would say de- is developers that want to learn more about artificial intelligence algorithms, including neural networks and machine learning, but um, also including all of the other uh, kind of underappreciated algorithms that I just mentioned. So the book starts off going through uh, search algorithms. And, uh, you know, someone who doesn't necessarily have a computer science degree should be able to pick this book up, understand the fundamentals of what we're trying to achieve with search, Understand what we're trying to achieve with optimization. And to kind of explain optimization, we use a lot of biological inspired algorithms, such as genetic algorithms, particle swarm optimization. These are algorithms that are inspired by nature, um, things like ant colonies and how they behave, or the theory of evolution, or flocks of birds and how they coordinate. So it's kind of giving the reader a background on some of these biological inspired algorithms before we jump into machine learning and neural networks and reinforcement learning mm-hmm. because a lot of a lot of the optimization that happens in deep learning leverages these these algorithms that i just mentioned so it's meant to kind of be this general gentle introduction into artificial intelligence algorithms for someone who hasn't had any experience with it in the past
0: yeah and um I was wondering how you got into writing the book, but also how you got into AI generally as a concept.
1: Yeah, I'd say, I think like most people in the tech industry, or maybe I'm stereotyping, but uh, everyone wanted to be a game developer because they, they kind of played these cool games as a kid and wanted to make them. And that was me. I wanted to make games and I thought that would be my career. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, a big part of uh, making games is this kind of concept of intelligent agents. You need to have something to challenge the player. So that interest, interested me a lot. Uh, I, I dabbled with with, uh, with a bit of AI in high school, or I don't know if we can still call it AI. It's it's the algorithms that I mentioned before, the kind of search techniques and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I had a big interest in AI in university, and here here's where I think a big part of the inspiration for the book came from is I wasn't great at math. I was actually really average or quite I struggled with with theoretical mathematics this this is mainly on the calculus side mm-hmm. uh, and I think in hindsight, I think it was because I couldn't see direct applications of the the theory that we were learning mm. however. After graduating, after uh, doing uh, my honors, uh, did some AI courses and kind of started to appreciate the power of the mathematics and the usefulness of, of the theory. Uh, but what I saw while, I, while I've been working in the last uh, nine to ten years or so was that a lot of my colleagues were still afraid of attempting any of these AI techniques because of the math and the fear of the math. And kind of that's that inspired a lot of the book. You'll, you'll notice the book has a lot of illustrations, a lot of pictures. Uh, I try to take this approach of kind of explain it like I'm 12 um, and introduce some of the mathematical concepts. But before that, explain it in a more visual and human way. Um, yeah, so I've just had that interest. I think in 2016, I, I founded this group called Artificial Intelligence South Africa. Um, mainly to get across what I'm explaining to you now, kind of making it clear to other developers that you can get into this, even if you're not mathematically inclined or not the best at academia or theoretical work. Um, And that group has grown now to around three and a half thousand people. So we host monthly, monthly events where we try and teach these concepts. We get other people from industry and even academia coming in and sharing their knowledge. So I think both the book as well as that group was derived from this kind of need to educate and empower other developers in machine learning and AI techniques. Ah,
0: great, and um, that's an uh, amazing amount of people um, for your your meetup group. Um, so congratulations, that's great. Um, is there uh, on that side of things is there is there much of a um, scene or a trend in the use of um these sorts of techniques within um south africa or um i mean we often talk about startups and things like that but obviously there's like you said um academia and other things that are going on which help um develop new algorithms but also implement algorithms and things like that so is there much of an appetite in in south africa
1: yeah i definitely think there is um I've spoken to people from from various areas around the world, Europe, um, the US, Australia, and it kind of seems that everyone is on the same, at the same stage at the moment. Well, at least the people that I've been speaking to in the industry. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the work being done with the enterprise clients or enterprise organizations, they typically move slower and they're slower to adopt these things. However, there's a lot of interest. So there's a lot of exploratory projects that are happening. Um, When it comes to a startup scene here locally, there are a few growing number of startups trying to solve local problems using modern AI techniques. Um, And this is mainly in the kind of financial industry. Um, South Africa has a big, kind of uh, financial industry, whether it comes to insurance, banking, um, kind of uh, industries like that. There's also a lot of kind of solutions coming coming up in the agriculture space mm. uh, in terms of how do we optimize our yield for certain crops in different climate conditions? How do we kind of future-proof um, yield based on different uh, changes in the climate? Because um, we, we're actually seeing a big problem with that at the moment. The the rains that were meant to come in September only arrive in December. And you can imagine the impact that that has for farmers, as well as the entire agriculture industry. So we're seeing a lot of small solutions, whether it's from startups, or even um, kind of people that are just doing it as pet projects, trying to see if they can, um, you know, build something that might help address some of these local issues.
0: Mm, Yeah, I mean, that's a really important set of issues that you've outlined there. I wonder, um, obviously, this is the Machine Ethics podcast. um, um, Is there some ethical consideration or exploration in the book or some of the other work that you you are doing at the moment?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, in the book, there is a, a section about the ethics of artificial intelligence, and the whole purpose of that is to... So that section is included in chapter one. And the reason it's there, right at the end, before we get into the technical side of things or the the really in-depth technical side of things, is to kind of ensure that the reader has this in mind when they're learning and trying to implement these techniques. I think legality is one thing. There's laws in different countries and different regions. However, a lot of the laws were based on an older world, a kind of non-digital world, Mm. so the one problem is that we have a lot of laws that aren't really relevant anymore or can't actually protect the general public or consumers um, from the modern developments that are happening with technology and AI. And then the other side is the ethical discussion, and ethics can sometimes be quite subjective. So that section in the book is trying to prime the reader to think about uh, legality, which might be black and white depending on what their solution is and where they live or what they're doing. And then the other side is ethics, which I think can sometimes be more personal, whether it's personal to the individual or personal to the organization. And it comes down to the uh, the values of that organization or that individual. So that's essentially what that section is trying to address. You know things like what's your intent in building the solution is it based on greed is it based on a greater good are you actually solving a problem are you trying to 10x profit uh with no real benefit to to who you're building it for um that's the kind of questions that that section is trying to prompt
0: yeah I, i'm nodding um, <laughs> um those are really important uh, questions And it's it's really nice that you uh, stipulated, like um, that you put it at the, the head of the book just to go, this is going to be an amazing journey. But then also think about these things, you know, mm. don't get too carried away. And um, there's this concept of uh, break things and then <laughs> fix them afterwards. And that's uh, how we've traditionally been doing technology. And it's not necessarily been doing us um, very well recently. So um, I, I noticed... On your website, you have the um, various articles on there, uh, and one of them is called "Spooky AI." I was wondering if you could um, elaborate a little bit more on that one. Yeah, so
1: yeah, "Spooky AI" was a talk that I gave at one of our events in October, and I did this talk to coincide with Halloween. I really like Halloween, and the whole premise of the talk basically is comparing technology that we see in sci-fi movies and TV shows with what's happening in real life, and what is the kind of moral and ethical standpoint on those on those technologies. I guess there was some shock factor to it. Uh, It was mainly focused on a TV show called Black Mirror. I don't know if you've if you've watched that show at all.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm familiar. I'm not sure if um, all our audience are, but if you're not, I think most of it is on Netflix or Channel 4 uh, in the UK um, and probably Netflix around the world. But I find Black Mirror excruciatingly difficult to watch because it is so close, you know, um, in its concepts and its uh, ideas of the future.
1: Yeah, I think that's why I chose it, because, I mean, some of the categories in this talk was... um, you know, talking around things like brain interfaces and they might be great and they might be useful, but what are the unintended consequences of creating that technology? So in that specific example, we see companies like, like Neuralink actually trying to address a real problem. They're trying to address uh, issues with Uh, with patients that might have uh, certain conditions where stimulating their brain with this technology could be useful in helping them have a better quality of life. But if you can read these signals from somebody's brain and you can also input signals into somebody's brain, what are the other possibilities uh, if someone wasn't that noble in their intentions? And basically, the spooky AI talk uh, went through a whole bunch of... Concepts like that, uh, including the one I just mentioned uh, bias in society Manipulation through media um, Yeah, so uh, Essentially it was a talk just to highlight the possible consequences of what we might doing and it actually ended off with some of the content that I described in the book around Legality and ethics in the work we're doing.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people have come out with um ideas of principles and frameworks and signaling that you have some sort of uh, ideology around this stuff. Can you see past that? Um, I mean, like you're saying before, if a company or an individual has an outward facing reflection on these ethical conundrums. You know, we will not maybe use AI for warfare or we will not, you know, is there anything else we can do um, pushing past that to help create better, more responsible um, AI for our, our society, basically? Is there is there anything else that we're missing in that equation?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. I think if, if you don't have noble values to begin with, it's going to be very difficult to make sure that you build something that's that's good and can't be used for bad. However, I think that in the time we live in, everybody kind of holds us, or at least they're starting to hold organizations accountable for what they're doing. So if you look in the information security space, um, people are now more and more exposing vulnerabilities with possible services offered by organizations and enough people's voices are heard the organizations respond Um, and i think similar work could be done in ai but it's hard to define that work because it's kind of emergent you often see people uh, exposing for the lack of a better word uh, poor ai or poor intent with certain ai i remember looking at a recruitment company that was trying to use AI to screen candidates based on um, a Skype call. And there was a lot of backlash about the morality of that. Um, So I think there is some sort of policing that's happening just because we're all connected um, that could be useful. But it's really, really difficult to set down kind of strict rules for people to follow because there's no consequence if they don't follow those rules.
0: Ah, so my next question would be, obviously, could there be consequences?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very tricky. Um, these are very difficult questions, but I can give you my opinion. I think a base set of guidelines can be legislated, um, but it's difficult to make them rules. They need to be guidelines because if you have to work in a strict framework, the downside of that is that you limit progress in that specific field because people can't explore because they're afraid of the possible co- consequences. Mm. And I think technology in general has evolved so rapidly because it's kind of been, you know, you can build what you want, and then we figure it out, and then we we build some rules around it. So I think some baseline guidelines can be useful. But in terms of strict rules and, and um, having a long list of, dictating what you can and can't do might be detrimental to progress
0: right right so almost leadership at that at that level rather than hard yes or no rules that you must follow
1: yeah yeah I think I think you put it well if you have good guidelines and values and leadership you don't need strict rules because you should be moving in the right direction you might not be completely um, out of the wrong you know you might make small mistakes but you shouldn't make terribly bad decisions and go down a, the wrong path completely where you're unable to to fix your wrongs
0: right I, w- I was wondering if i i've got some notes here because um, i'm a pedant for these things i was wondering why or rather was it Uh, intentional that uh, there is no mention of my of expert systems and or automata in your in your book
1: yeah that's a good question I actually originally had expert systems as a chapter that was was going to be covered Um, so one of the kind of pillars of the book is to make sure that the content being taught is applicable to the work that people might be doing It, it should benefit the reader in a practical way and it's from speaking to to some of the people I know in industry as well as doing some research uh, I couldn't find wide enough usage of expert systems um, at this point in time although they were heavily used in the 90s and and even before that so that's made the main reason that that chapter was excluded the the benefit of uh, if, if you bring that back to kind of um I don't want to use the word policing, or let's say um, if we bring it back to kind of making sure people aren't doing terrible things with AI, things like expert systems were useful because you understood exactly why a solution was behaving in a specific way, mm. um, which is another big problem we're having with deep learning. Decisions are being made in a black box and it's very hard to tell why those decisions are being made. and we see in the media as often, um, you know, resulting in discrimination in various forms. So um, things like expert systems might be useful. Things like decision trees are useful. Um, and there's a lot of work being done in that area as well. Uh, I know of a project that's trying to analyze a neural network and build a decision tree of the decisions that that network is making. Right. So I think it's small steps in the right direction but um, these almost, let's say, uh, legacy approaches might have been better from an ethical perspective.
0: Yeah, so that's really interesting that you start seeing these kind of algorithms being used as ways of looking into these black boxes, almost kind of like, well, this is doing this output over here, but we can try and analyze it and work out a more structured kind of human readable way of doing it. Do you think that there is a way that that can really work? Or is there other ways that you see happening in research or um, by intuition, do you think there's a a different way
1: of doing this sort of work? Yeah, I think that approach can work to an extent. As I said, it's a small step in the right direction. Uh, One of the problems with it though, is how do you know that that um, algorithm that's now analyzing the neural network is doing its job correctly? Right. You know, do you, do you build something else to validate that? And then how do you know that one is doing its job correctly? So it, it can be um, something very difficult to solve if we try to use technology. But I think at least in midterm, short to midterm, I see AI and machine learning and the solutions we're building with them as being a companion to people, uh, not a replacement of people. So a lot of the work we do when we are building solutions in my job, um, we are often providing tools that enable people to do more decision-making work, or provide an elevated customer experience, or be more involved in strategic work than being involved in the kind of busy work, um, repetitive, menial, dull kind of work. We, we try to build solutions where um, software can take care of that and it can provide recommendations or hints of what a good decision might be, but ultimately it should be a person that makes that decision. And that can be more or less important based on the context. I mean, if you're working with equipment for a hospital, you might say that 100% of the time there should be a human making the final call. Um, If you're working with who gets awarded a personal loan, you might say, okay, um, you know, for for 80% of it, our algorithm works pretty well, and we can use people to make decisions for 20% of that. So I think it's always dependent on context, but I feel that the solution should always be a tool that enables people not replacing people.
0: Right, so um, making their job easier or more efficient or better or or whatever it is in that context.
1: Yeah, I think the goal is, I wouldn't say easier, I'd say you make, you you take up all of the work that isn't stimulating to that person and um, you get a solution that solves that. Do that with software and allow that person the time and energy to do something more meaningful. So... In a corporate organization, it might allow them to provide excellent next level customer service. Um, You know, that could get them further in their career or actually just stimulate them more on a day-to-day basis. Um, That's the kind of approach I would say organizations should be taking. And it's not really just for ethics sake. I think that approach makes more business sense. Than, than the former of just kind of get software to do everything because the software, as much as you know, deep learning might be very useful or AI algorithms might be very useful, they're never always right. They're always sometimes wrong and you need to be able to deal with those situations when they're wrong and the best way or the only way to deal with those situations is to have a person who has this vast amount of knowledge and context about the business about the problem about the solution about people about the world and be able to string that all together to make a a decision that's right for that situation
0: yeah so i'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second um because people who listen to the podcast will know that that's that's kind of my shtick um so let's say in a future world we have uh, automated all the all the drudgery of people's jobs. Uh maybe we've automated a little bit more and a little bit more and slowly but surely we chip away and people are, you know, finding that they don't necessarily have the jobs they had before. What what kind of world does that look like? Does it look like um people find new jobs or new things to do or does it look like something more akin to some sort of utopian dream of no work, and we have to find something else to do. What What do you think about kind of that sort of vision? Yeah, I
1: think the only way to it's it's very diff, impossible to predict the future. But if we look at what what's happened in history with similar kind of things, um, where we've you know we've evolved through these different ages, and there was an introduction of new jobs that we would have never guessed was possible um, before that kind of revolution. And I hate using the term revolution, but before a kind of critical point in time with the introduction of the internet, there was no digital marketers. There was no social media influencers. There was no, you know, there's countless jobs that didn't exist before the introduction of that technology. So on the one hand, we might not know what the possibilities are, but on the other hand, um, there will definitely be people that do lose their jobs, who are unable to acquire skills to, to do a different job. I mean, we've, we've seen that with, um, you know, the rise of factories and, and um, kind of more in the manufacturing space, people do, in reality, lose their jobs to machines. So I think if you put on a different hat and you want to think more abstractly and globally about it, um, from an evolutionary standpoint, you're going to have people that do kind of suffer due to acceleration in, in technology. So um, I think it's naive to say that that's never going to happen. I would say that it's a responsibility of the organizations where people do are put in that situation to deal with it in a humane way, um, in an ethical way. And it's hard to hold, hold people accountable to that. But um, it's also hard to say that, you know, we, we can prevent job loss from automation. I think that would just be naive. So, so on the one hand, there'd be introductions of new jobs that we can never imagine. And on the other hand, we know for a fact that people will, lose their existing jobs. We know that they might not attain the skills to, to do a different job. Uh, but I think that's that's what evolution is. That's, that's how things have happened throughout history. So I think it's something that you could have a safe bet would happen in the future.
0: Yeah, 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 I would agree. So um, we're getting through all my questions now. Is there something you would like to
1: talk about that we haven't covered so far? The only thing that really comes to mind is based on on some of the things we've been talking about um, throughout the session, is kind of your original intent when you're doing something. So I do a lot of consulting work. And a lot of the time, customers want to introduce some new digital technology that's going to kind of evolve the organization. And and people often, often refer to this as digital transformation. You know, we want to move from being this big mammoth that moves very slowly, and we want to be lean, and we want to be digital, and we want to be accessible from different channels. And that's just one example, right? Um, Organizations always want to innovate. And the one thing I like to kind of prompt is, what is the driving factor for this decision? What's the intent? Is it, are you doing this because you're hopeful that you can do something better, or you're doing it because you're fearful. And in my opinion, a lot of the time where you have solutions that do damage is because people are fearful. Um, they're fearful of a competitor. or They're fearful that uh, another country might attack them. And they build technology to th- th- that's based on that fear. Whereas when we're building technology that's based on hope, it always seems that there's Likely going to be a more positive outcome. So I think an interesting question to ask yourself when you take on a project or you're embarking on a solution and you have an ethical conundrum is, you know, are we doing this stemming from fear or are we doing this stemming from hope?
0: Uh, do you have any examples of how those are played out, or is it sort of a, a thing you kind of seen and heard out anecdotally from from employees? yeah, I guess
1: it's a little bit of intuition, um, kind of a personal intuition that from from my experiences. Um, but i could I could give you a practical example. Um, one organization, we were building a an app that helps take a whole lot of catalogs and calculations that were kept in physical books and putting it onto a tablet and um, allowing calculations to happen. To make good recommendations to a customer. So I'll give you a little bit of context on that. It was um, calculating what the right product is to purchase for a better yield in the agriculture industry. Now typically there are consultants that do that work and with all this data one of the options was well we don't need the consultants. We could really just uh, let the computer calculate what the optimal um, arrangement of products would be and offer that. And our client said, well, no, that's not part of their values. They're not, they're not doing this because they're um, afraid that they're going to lose profit or um, any of that. The, their primary driver was more hopeful. They wanted to provide a, best, a better customer experience um, to their clients. Um, So, that solution didn't stem from, you know, we need to automate, we need to be more optimal. It stemmed from, we need to be better. Um, And that's an example of when you're more hopeful. Mm. Um, Other examples, you might have a situation where you actually do want to, um, you know, cut costs and replace people behind a counter with little kiosks. And then when you want to roll that out, you get resistance from, from everyone at the kiosks, uh, uh, sorry, behind the desk that, that are actually running the business at the moment. And the kiosks never get adopted because they're the the people on the ground actually making sure that things happen. Um, you get a lot of resistance. You get a lot of friction. Um, it's very hard to, to do that kind of change management uh, because people are fearful that this kiosk is now going to replace them. So uh, those are two examples where some of this intuition is coming from. Um, When you're more positive and hopeful with your intent, you usually have less friction and better results.
0: I agree, and those are both kind of examples of automation usurping jobs as well, uh, interestingly, as we were talking before. Do you think that the the people who were recommending um, the products in the first example, they had other opportunities presented to them or that they had other work that they were doing?
1: Yeah. So um, in that case, I think those particular people could be doing other work, but the work they were doing was useful and they enjoyed it. Building on that, the people also had some internal intuition about what's best to recommend. Um, like I mentioned before, the 20% of the time that an algorithm might be wrong can be very critical. So imagine 20 farms that had suboptimal yield. Um, you know, that's that's a large amount that that could be catastrophic to their businesses and the whole industry. Um, so these people had in their brains the knowledge and experience and intuition of what to recommend based on, you know, it might be that uh, there's a patch of soil that doesn't look quite right. And I've seen this before, and what usually happens is there's certain pests that get attracted to that that soil content. So we need to fix it in you know, a specific way. It's very difficult to get a machine to have that kind of intuition um, if the consultants never record that intuition anyway. Mm. So, so on the one hand, there was still a lot of usefulness in the people and they enjoyed their work. But on the other hand, if we, we had to um, automate what they were doing, they would have um, other kind of work that they could do because of their expertise and experience over the years in the agriculture space.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in, in that example, you can't, the machine is almost like the lay person who has the information most of the time, but can't exactly augment it with what's actually happening in this specific case or um, talking to someone about their experience, you know, maybe talking to the farmer and, and finding out more or, you know, finding out all this auxiliary information, which might be more useful in the, like you said, the 20% cases.
1: Yeah, exactly that. Um, You touched on a very good point that I I failed to mention, but the end user, the end customer, who is the farmer, actually enjoyed the interactions with the consultant. Um, They had more of a friendship um, than a professional relationship. They would, you know, have a barbecue together. They would discuss um, all sorts of things surrounding the farming industry. Um, and the crops that's been grown. So that human element, I think, is very important. And in that scenario, it was quite important to the organization as well. Because if they if they got rid of that, they might have lost a lot of customers because there's no interpersonal interactions anymore.
0: Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. So we're getting towards the end here. Um, the last question we always ask is, Uh, What excites you and what scares you about uh, AI, uh, some of these algorithms we've been talking about, and the future of society?
1: Yeah, I think what excites me is the diversity of kind of exploration and different interesting solutions that everyone is coming up with. Um, And I don't think that's specific to AI or machine learning. It's more from a technology perspective. Um, It's fascinating that we have... You know, someone sitting at home after work or a student in their room um, that come up with really interesting solutions to almost any problem you could you could think of. Um, if you have an idea of something and you Google it, you'd probably find a GitHub project or a little website of someone who's trying to accomplish that. So um, I think it's quite fascinating that we have this diversity of thinking and this entire planet kind of also having instant access to each other to accelerate the technological improvement uh, and technological advancement of of humanity in general. However, that's also probably the reason that uh, I'm fearful of, of certain things, and that's mainly influencing people through the interactions Um, with digital technologies. Um, I mean, people who are in the industry might be a bit more primed to understand what's real and what's not real when they're reading something online. But the layperson, the average consumer, um, can be manipulated quite heavily by the content they're consuming uh, on the internet or on their phone or on their computer, um, which is quite scary. I think, you know, if you can access someone's thoughts, which essentially is what you're doing, if you can mold how they think and persuade their choices and decisions, that's quite powerful. But like we were talking about earlier, if you have the wrong intent, seriously scary consequences to that. And it all stems from the same thing. Um, It's exciting because we're all connected and we can uh, have this rapid advancement but it's frightening because that can be misused as well.
0: Great! So we should all um, read your book and um, battle against that. I'm guessing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess we can try. I guess the more more people that try, the better the odds.
0: Yeah, great. Um, uh, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm hopeful that um, enough people um, uh, have the right values and appreciate that they are people in the world and that they should hopefully make good things for other people and that we should all um, prosper. And, um, you know, there's this general idea of flourishing, whatever that means, um, but that we somehow attain that flourishing with this extremely useful, but also powerful and um, confusing technology, which is uh, AI and all these algorithms.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally agree.
0: Great. Um, so, uh, if people want to follow you, contact you, um, find your stuff, how can they do that?
1: Um, yeah, so my website is rherbins.com. It's my first initial and my surname.com. Uh, most of my contact details you can find through that website. Also, get in touch with me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Those are the two main kind of social media platforms that I use. Yeah, if you message me, I'll try and respond. Yeah, and uh, the other is the Manning.com website. So there is a discussion forum on the live book um, that you can chat to me, you can comment on the chapters, um, and you can give feedback through that as well. Uh, that's just another channel to get in touch.
0: Great, I'll check that out. Thank you uh, very much for uh, spending your time with us on, on the podcast and, and for your thoughts and your expertise. So thanks very much and um, I'll
1: speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ben. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you to Rashaw and to Manning Publications. Um, it was actually lovely to hear that the ethics part was an important part of the book, even if it's a primarily a technical book. So for me, that's a big win. If you would like to win a copy of the book, um, you could answer this question either on our Patreon, um, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics, our Twitter, machine uh, underscore ethics, or comments on our Instagram, Machine Ethics Podcast, or on the YouTube channel if you search for Machine Ethics Podcast. What we would like to know is what's the one thing that we should never automate? I'll pick a winner next Friday on the 14th of February and send you a copy of the code for the book. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.